You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB in this issue podcast for September 2010, volume 48, issue 9. My name's Ike Hanachar and I'm editor of DTB and I'm joined by David Fazakali, DTB's deputy editor. Hello. The first article in this issue is our editorial entitled The Price You Pay. David, what's this about? This editorial concentrates on the issue of orphan drugs, um, drugs which are used for rare diseases or conditions where there are not that many people who are affected um, and therefore the interest, particularly from pharmaceutical industry in developing drugs for uh, the management of these conditions is, is limited. And the European Union has introduced some legislation to support the development of orphan drugs, such as reduce licensing fees um, and extend the, the, the market exclusivity period for, for such drugs to try and encourage development um, in this area. And it's been a success story in that there have been probably something like 60 drugs um, over the last 10 years that have been made available to treat something like 2.5 million people. And sometimes it's existing drugs that are taken through the licensing process. Sometimes it's new ones developed from scratch. But on one or two occasions, um, existing unlicensed drugs or drugs licensed for other indications have been put through the process and, and licensed as orphan drugs. And one of the consequences of this has been that the price has risen once the drug has, has got this, this status. And we concentrate on a, on a recent example where a drug which was available as an unlicensed form for the treatment of Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome at about £1,000 per patient per year has now become a licensed version and the price has gone up to between £11,000 to £44,000 per year per patient. So we just question whether actually the benefits that the EU has introduced ought perhaps also to be tempered with some some control over the, the final pricing. So our concern isn't with the idea that there should be organ uh, orphan drugs uh, licensed it's not we're not against the policy of the eu in in that respect no the policy seems a very fair one um to increase access to uh, medicines for for people who's who've got some very rare conditions no it's not that at all it's 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 the consequence of the pricing um that, that results from this process that sometimes seems perhaps a little anomalous with what what has gone before okay the first main article in this issue is entitled Management of Corticosteroid-Induced Osteoporosis. A uh, common condition, David? Yes, oral corticosteroids used widely for a variety of con- conditions and often in long-term therapy for things like rheumatoid arthritis and even some of the uh, more common respiratory conditions. So people can be on them for a long time and one of the things we know about corticosteroids is that they do affect your bone metabolism they lower your bone mineral density and therefore increase your risk of both osteoporosis and, more worryingly, um, the likelihood of, of fractures. So there is concern that long-term or high-dose use for long periods of oral corticosteroids will reduce uh, both your, uh, your bone mineral density and increase your risk of fractures. And what we look at in this article is what can be done about it. What are the options for managing uh, patients who have to be on on long courses of, of steroids. Clearly, what we're most interested in, in is avoiding fractures. M- measuring bone mineral density gives an idea of what's happening to, to people's bone, but it doesn't tell us whether they're going to fracture or not. 
and what we're trying to avoid is clearly is is the sort of uh, long-term consequences of of fractures. So there's a bit of guidance out there that's just been updated from the American College of Rheumatologists, which we concentrate on, looking at what their recommendations are, particularly using the FRAX risk assessment tool to try and determine who is likely to be at the highest risk of fracturing. So we look at the college guidance and how that might affect how treatment is managed. And then we look at the individual drugs themselves. So what are, what are the options we've got for managing patients? And they are, generally? Well, there's, there's lifestyle and sort of calcium and vitamin D maintenance, the routine stuff that you would expect all patients to be counselled on. And then you've got the standard treatments for use for osteoporosis, such as uh, the bisphosphonates, drugs like uh, teriparatide. And we look at whether the, the evidence that is available, and predominantly this is in um, osteoporosis rather than in corticosteroid-induced osteoporosis, whether the evidence is good enough to put together some recommendations and support uh, these drugs' use in the management of corticosteroid-induced osteoporosis. Thank you. The second main article in this issue is entitled What Role for Clara in Contraception? Now, Clara is an oral contraceptive, David, of which there are lots. Why, why are we bothering to review this one? I guess Clara is interesting for two reasons. The first reason is that it, it includes a different combination of hormones from some of the more established products. So it is the first one in this country to include the estrogen estradiol valerate and also contains the progesterone dianogest. So what's the significance of the oestrogen component? Well, the claim for the oestrogen is that it is the same oestrogen as produced by the woman's body. That's the marketing claim for it. Um, so it's metabolised in the body to oestradiol, therefore you know, equivalent to the natural human hormone. And so it is marketed as being closer to what nature intended women to, to have. The other interesting thing about it is that it is quite a complex um, regimen. It's a quadrophasic pill with lots of different colours throughout the regime and therefore the instructions for taking it and for what to do if you've missed a pill are actually quite complex. And in the article we do reproduce the instructions which highlight some of the complexities around um, the missed pill guidance for this particular product and even the, the difficulty that for some of the, the same coloured pills different instructions apply depending on which day of the cycle the pill is being taken. So it, it, it isn't straightforward. I think what we try and stress in this article is you know, this, this is a new product. It has some claims for its, for its benefits, but actually there are some complexities associated with it and people may want to take those into account before prescribing. Thank you. The third main article in this issue is entitled A Guide to Health Economic Evaluations. Now, clearly that's a very broad topic, David. I wonder what this article is trying to do in a relatively short space. Well, we thought that health economic evaluations are bandaged around the whole time. They feature in lots of um, publications, NICE guidance, and some of the other committees who recommend the use of medicines, such as the Scottish Medicines Consortium and the All Wells Medicine Strategy Group, use these as the basis of uh, their decision-making process. So what we thought might be useful in, in this article and uh, a future article is to pick up some of the, the background to health economic evaluations and look at the terms um, that are commonly used and encountered. So that anyone who's 
reading these for the first time or coming across them as part of decision-making practice-based commissioning groups or as decision-making groups at primary care trust level can have an idea of, of what the actual terms are that they are likely to be faced with in these evaluations um, to give a bit more background. So it's taking the terms and, and explaining them um, perhaps to people who aren't so familiar with them. Thank you. And finally in this issue, there's a brief mention of our Don't Drop Mixed 30 campaign. Mixed 30 is a type of biphasic human insulin which is going to be withdrawn from the UK market at the end of 2010. DTB objects to this move and has launched a campaign against it. To find out more about this, please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com. You can also go there to read about any of the articles that David and I have discussed in this issue. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.